Uh, we turn uh, tonight to Genesis uh, chapter 2 and the verses we read uh, there together from 18 to 25, Genesis and chapter 2, thinking of foundations for living in the 21st century and thinking this evening of marriage. And I'm sure uh, we, we all agree and recognize that marriage is under attack uh, within our society. The biblical definition of marriage of one man leaving his parents and cleaving to one woman is under attack at this time. It's evident in the debate uh, within the, the largest uh, denomination within the UK, the Church of England, that debate over blessing for same-sex marriages. Then marriage between one man and woman is under attack by the ease with which people can be divorced. In the UK, the average divorce rate is 42%. Marriage is under attack from online temptations. It's under attack from the commonness of affairs among spouses, around 50% of men just over and just over 50% of women acknowledge to having an extramarital affair lasting on average two years. And none of us are being helped by the current very public case of the former US president claiming that he has done nothing wrong in what he has done. And so it's really important for us to revisit this first marriage in the pre-fall world and learn how God intended marriage to be. Here's the fifth of our foundations for living in the 21st century. Going back to the very beginning of humanity, when only two people were on the earth rather than the eight billion there are now. Located in the geographical region of present-day Iraq, the Garden of Eden was the home, the temple, the place where Adam and Eve were. And in these two chapters, foundations are being laid by God for us living today in the 21st century, just as the foundations for our patio for our garden shed are important. If we get that wrong, the whole structure will be affected. So as we live our lives, it's crucial for us to return to the foundations set down at the very beginning of the Bible, at the very beginning of human history, determined there by God. Creation Ministries coming to us on the 10th of May, they really emphasize Genesis 1, don't they? And show how that is foundational to our understanding of who we are and where our world came from. But it's also really important for us as we live our lives to understand Genesis 2 and 3. And the foundations that are placed there. And we've been noticing them. The foundation of work. That it's not something that came after the fall. But was something that was there before the fall. The foundation of our identity, who we are, made by God, made like God, made for God. The foundation of the Sabbath day, a day of rest, a day that's holy, a day that's blessed, a day that's symbolic of the eternal rest that we hope for through Christ. And the foundation of covenant, that we are all in covenant with God, in that covenant of works, and we stand either condemned through our failure or justified through the righteousness of Christ, our head, who has kept that covenant on our behalf. Today, then, we're considering this fifth foundation of marriage. It's appealed to by Jesus and by Paul as they discuss marriage, we read in Ephesians 5 and Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 
to Jesus when he's discussing marriage with the Pharisees in Matthew 19, for example, once again quotes from Genesis chapter 2. And we can see how this is an important section within this second chapter of the Bible. The amount of space given to it, a third of this chapter, is devoted to this subject of marriage. And so we want to identify some principles from this chapter which will help us and guide us as we live for God at this time. The first principle that we want to notice is that marriage is ordained by God. Marriage is from God. In verse number 18, uh, we read, Then the Lord God said. This is God creating marriage. God coming up with marriage. God initiating marriage for humanity. This formula is the same used in chapter 1, which introduces the creative work of God. And here is another creation of God. The creation of woman so that marriage can take place. This is not Adam's idea. He was far smarter than we are. He hasn't didn't have the the centuries of degeneration of the human brain that you and I have inherited. Musically, mechanically, philosophically, theologically, practically, Adam was smarter than anyone living today. But it's not his idea. It's the Lord God said, let me make woman for man. John Stott writes, marriage is in all societies a recognized and regulated human institution. And so it is. But it is not, he says, a human invention. The 1662 Book of Common Prayer rightly says it was instituted by God himself in the time of man's innocency. And the deliberateness of this creation of marriage, this new idea of marriage is emphasized in the biblical account. The man is first formed, then the woman. This this action of God creates drama and deliberation. It's teased out for emphasis and focus. It grips our attention. We wonder what's coming next. In the creation of man and woman in chapter 1, it's it's given to us in verse number 27 in summary form. And, And we might think as we read that chapter, they were made at the same time. But the purpose of chapter 2 is not to correct the mistakes of chapter 1, as the liberals would argue, but to tease out, in particular, the creation of man and woman. It's like a microscope has been held over verse 27. And what actually happened in the creation of man and woman has been spelled out for us now in this second chapter. And with great care and deliberateness and focus, God makes man and makes woman. This is his invention. This is his creation. This comes from him. This is not from Adam. It's not from Eve. This marriage is from God. When we're buying something, uh, we will check where it is made, won't we? Going for a, a new TV, perhaps. We'll check the high sense comes from China. It will understand that the LG model comes from South Korea. 
looking at a, an academic book will we'll check where the, the author has been educated, what university he, he has gone to or graduated from. We are interested in the origins of things and the origins of things affect our use of them, our purchase of them, our value of them. And here, the first point about marriage for us today is that this comes from God. The Lord God said, and we're to embrace that because our creator, who always knows best, has ordained it. Theologians in the Middle Ages, theologians within the Roman Catholic Church, they have argued that marriage is not good for the monk. It's not good for the priest. It's a distraction to them. There are men who are set apart for spiritual things, men who are above the common, ordinary life. But, but think of Genesis chapter 2. Who is marriage being made for? For Adam, the innocent man, the man in closest fellowship with God that any man has ever been, the man who's the prophet, the priest, the king in the temple of Eden. It's for this spiritual man. That marriage is made. And so Hebrews 13 explicitly states, marriage is good for all. And 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 states, those who forbid to marry are false teachers who have been misled by deceiving spirits. So our first principle and foundational principle is, marriage is ordained by God. Secondly, Marriage is for companionship. In 2.18, God says it is not good that the man should be alone. The Hebrew sentence places not good at the start of this assertion for emphasis. This is God's viewpoint. This is God's interpretation of the emotional state of the man that he has made. It's not stated if Adam felt lonely. This is God's opinion, his assessment of the heart and soul and emotional condition of mankind. It is not good that the man should be alone. Derek Kidner, he comments very beautifully and says, Man will not live until he loves, giving himself away to another on his own level. And so isolation was not the divine norm for human beings. A community was the creative vision of God. And this we know is one of the key purposes of marriage along with bearing children, along with sexual fulfillment, is companionship. One of the biggest changes that, that people who get married realize is that there's someone there 24-7. I remember at the start, it was a bit scary. Someone around all the time, looking over your shoulder, seeing everything that was, was going on. But, 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 but after the initial shock, you, you go over this and you realize this is a great thing. There is this constant companionship. You come home and you can share your day, your, your highs and your lows. But to benefit from that companionship within our marriage... We have to spend time together, don't we? And that can be a challenge for us who are busy, for us who are working, for us who have hobbies, for us who have interests and commitments. 
to benefit from that intention, one key intention of marriage, means that we have to spend time together. We must spend time together. This companionship in marriage helps when life is hard. It helps when making decisions, whatever those decisions are, whether you think that you're the expert in this field, I really encourage you to consult your wife, consult your husband, and that together you will make a better decision. Companionship gives us someone to share in the successes of your career and of your life. And we know that for those who have been bereaved, this is the one thing that really haunts them and really hurts them. It's that absence of companionship. That the one who was always there, sharing in the joys and sorrows, is no longer with them. That is one of the key intentions of marriage, companionship. And so as a congregation, we must care for those who live alone. We must ensure that they know and that they feel they have a family, a church family. That when we are sitting in our house with our children crawling all over us, they might be sitting at their kitchen table crying into their coffee or broken with a sense of loneliness in their heart. The second principle is marriage is for companionship. It is not good that the man should be alone. Thirdly, marriage is for mutual support. 2.18, God says, I will make and help for him. Man and woman are completely equal, but have functional differences. The woman, it says here, would be the helper of the man. Help in the sense of aid. Help in the sense of support. There's no sense of inferiority within this intention to the man. It's that her role differs from that of the man's. The woman is distinguished from all other creation. She's not of the order of other creatures. She is made equal to the man, but her role is that of helper of the man. In marriage classes, this has always been a, an issue. It, it comes up. And I remember, I remember giving out, we'd give out Brian Edwards' book to anyone getting married, two into one. And I remember giving out to, to this unconverted couple. And they, they were going to get married, and I was going to marry them. And I wondered, would they ever read this book? And the girl had a PhD. And I wondered, like, will she take time to read this? She turned up. And I, I asked at the start, you know, have you read this book? She says, yes, I have, and I disagree with page 54. And, uh, okay, we got page 54 out, and it was just about this point. But, but what's always been useful to me is, is to put it across this way. Think about being a helper. A blind man out on Regent Street there, you help them across the road. You're their helper. And who, who is the stronger in that situation? Is, the, is it the one who's helping or the one who's been helped? It's the one who's helping, isn't it? 
And, and, and that's always been a, a useful angle for me. Such was the inadequacy of man. Such was man's struggle to cope with, with all the roles that he had and the responsibilities that were being placed on him. God saying, that, that man's not able to do that. I need to make someone that will help him fulfill his roles and his function. The phrase has been misused, hasn't it? And the, the, the impression and the view that, that women are inferior to the man because they were made to be man's helper is promoted. Alistair Begg, in his, his brilliant book, uh, Lasting Love, uh, he cites uh, the, the song from the 1970s, Put Another Log on the Fire, Cook Me Up Some Bacon and Some Beans, and Go Out to the Car and Change the Tire, Wash My Socks and Sew and sew My Old Blue Jeans. Come on, babe. And, and the song goes on like that, and you can find it uh, later on. But, it, but it's, it's got the, the wrong understanding of, of the role of, of the wife uh, within the marriage. And, and what really, really clinches uh, the, 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 the error uh, of, of this approach of, of thinking that helper means the inferior party is the fact that God is described as our helper. Psalm 121, the Lord is my helper, my shade on my right hand. And who is the weak party in that situation? Is it the one who's helping or the one who's being helped? Surely it's us, the one who's being helped by God, the greater one. So marriage is for mutual support. I will make woman to be a help for him. And this attitude is to be reflected in the church and especially in our church who, have, who has male leadership within session and within the deacons. And as we fix up Lower Mary Street, I think it would be a wise and a really important thing to involve the woman's fellowship who can do things that men just can't do. Principle four, marriage is between one man and one woman. In 2.22, we read that God brought Eve to the man. One woman brought to one man. One male and one female brought together in marriage. Not Adam and Steve, as we know, but Adam and Eve. And that's the biblical pattern throughout the Bible. All other unions are forbidden by God. One man and one man, one woman, one woman. Such relationships are forbidden. And it was not long in the history of humanity before this pattern of marriage was challenged. The case of Sodom and Gomorrah comes just in chapters 18 and 19 of the book of Genesis. And the displeasure of God against such relationships is clear and evident as destruction of those cities. The New Testament world, like our world, was per per pervaded by same-sex relations from the emperors who were renowned for this practice to the large cities where churches were planted. And so, in the New Testament letters, there is mention of same-sex relationships 
And the scriptures stated with clarity, 1 Timothy 1.10, the law is laid down for the lawless, for men who practice homosexuality. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here it's been set down. Genesis chapter 2. One man, one woman. But you say, well, I know some same-sex couples who claim to be Christians. And they say that the Bible does not condemn their practice. What is their argument then? Well, they claim that only six verses out of 31,000 verses in the Bible mention homosexuality. So they argue, this is not a big deal then. They claim Genesis 19, one of the six, is not clear. They claim the two verses in Leviticus about same-sex relations is, is redundant now. We've moved on from that. And they claim 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1 are lists which are making a general point and just happen to include homosexuality. Another time we'll respond to, to all of those arguments. But at this point we emphasize in Genesis 2, the foundation of the world, the biblical pattern is clear. It's one man for one woman. Principle five, marriage is between two equal parties. The equality of man and woman was stated in chapter one when it asserted that both man and woman were made in the image of God. Both were appointed to rule over the earth in chapter one, 26 to 28. And this equality of value of man and woman is emphasized in this account in marriage. In the expression that we have in verse 18, I will make him a helper, fit or meet, suited for him. It literally is like what is in front of him, corresponding to the man. The woman will be equal, corresponding to the man, fit for him. Matthew's comments, the focus in this phrase is on the equality of the two in terms of that essential constitution. The second emphasis is in verses 19 to 20. This aside, which it seems to, to be a digression in verses 19 to 20, which steers off uh, from this focus on marriage to a, a discussion of the animals. What is the purpose of verses 19 and 20 uh, within this whole account on marriage? Well, it's a foil uh, to show that within the animal kingdom, there was no suitable helper found for Adam. That helper would come from his bone, from his flesh, from his rib. Someone who was equal. Someone who was of the same value, the same worth, the same origin. A third emphasis on equality is found in verse 21. The rib taken out of the side of Adam. And Aquinas made that very famous statement. He said, not from the head as if above man, not from the feet as if <coughs> beneath man, but from the side, from the rib, as equal to man. That emphasis is recognized by Adam in verse 23. 
he exclaims, this at last. He hears relief in his mind, in his heart. There seems to be within him perhaps a a longing, a seeking as he's named the animals, as they've been brought to him, as he's scrutinized them, as he's looked over him. Then there's been disappointment within his heart that no one suited to him was found within all the animal kingdom, the creatures of God. But now at last, this is bone of my bones. There is that equality. She's born. I'm born. She's flesh. I'm flesh. Marriage is between two equal parties. But sameness does not mean exactness of role, does it? The man made first, the man naming the animals, the man naming his wife indicates that leadership role that God has given to him. The latest advert by Nike has been opposed by many women. The transgender actor is seeking to blur all distinctions between male and female. Distinctions which cannot be erased. Sharon Davies, the sports presenter, is is opposing this and leading a, a large group of people which should include ourselves against those who are seeking to abolish distinctions which God has placed in the roles and in the natures of man and woman. And it is a critical point, isn't it? The Bible asserts equality of value, but recognizes distinctions of roles. And thus men and women are not to seek equality in all things, but should have the assurance that all are equal. Perhaps to the men who recognize And know that they have that role of leadership. That there is a challenge for us. What kind of leader are we? Do we embrace our role? Are we good leaders? Are we caring, humble, loving, wise, considerate leaders within our homes, within our marriages? How are we in our religious responsibilities primarily? Do we lead well in those? Marriage is between two equal parties, but parties who have been given different roles. Sixthly, principle six, marriage changes two into one. Marriage involves one flesh, verse 24, leaving parents and clinging to one woman. Involves a new pledge to a spouse in which former familial commitments are suspended. Obligations to one's spouse supplant a person's parental loyalties. Leave, it's a a metaphorical, not a geographical term, isn't it? Because sometimes the woman moves from her home into the, the man's home, Jacob's sons. They never left the father's house, but rather their wives came to live with them. So it wasn't a geographical leaving, but but it was to be a relational leaving that they would make decisions within their marriage, between them and their wife, rather than between them and their parents. Two people freed from their parents, they're not to live isolated or independent, but they become one flesh. Dependent on each other, responsible towards each other, 
an inclusion of sexual, emotional, societal union, indicating the union that husband and wife is a closer union than that of parent and child. They become one flesh. Begg's book, he has a, a great story uh, of a, a, a wedding uh, rehearsal. And in America, they, they have a dinner uh, at the wedding rehearsal, all, all the sort of technical stuff is done and, and then the families meet up for, for a meal the, the night before. And on this occasion of uh, the marriage of a man called John, uh, at this, this large gathering of people, many, many of the guests present, the, 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 the groom's mother stood up with this ornate box and in the dramatic fashion she, she unpacks this, this ornate box and in the box is one of her favourite aprons. And she, she holds up this apron and takes out this massive pair of scissors and, and cuts off the apron strings and gives the strings to the bride-to-be. And she said, my relationship with my son will never be the same again. Her son was leaving his father and his mother. And he and his wife the next day would become one flesh and his mother was recognizing that his primary responsibility for making decisions was not between the father and the mother, but between the husband and the wife. One flesh changes two into one. Our society, our town is plagued with cohabitation, isn't it? An arrangement which many people choose in the place of marriage. But it lacks two important elements of marriage, doesn't it? Permanence and publicity. People move in together on a trial basis. Will they get on? Can they manage financially, emotionally, psychologically? And the whole arrangement is, is of a private nature. You find out maybe six months after they've been living together. No one's aware of this new arrangement which they've taken up. One writer says cohabitation is not, cannot be marriage in all but name. Marriage is public and formal, whereas cohabitation remains private and provisional. They become one flesh. That's why we pray for the young people of our church. That each one of them will marry a godly young man or young woman. They enter into the closest possible union that any human being can enter. And in that union, there must be, for the believer, a unity in Christian love and service and worship. And lastly, principle seven, marriage involves complete transparency. The last verse, which I always find embarrassing, uh, and I haven't always read a, a marriage, uh, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. I usually stop at verse number 24. But, but I'm going to reflect on that and, and change my, my way because it really contains a, a, a really important truth that marriage involves transparency 
Luther applies this passage theologically. He gets away from all the awkwardness and this is what he says. This passage points out admirably how much evil followed after the sin of Adam for now it would be regarded as the utmost madness if anyone walked about naked. So he's saying we see from this verse how how much sin has affected us because because of this point. And, And it's been made by Tesla, hasn't it? Tesla that have the cameras on it and the the staff there have been misusing the cameras. They've been posting online all these videos of people walking out to their car naked, caught by Tesla and so on. So we get this point that, that Luther's making. But I think there's another practical point. The point is that in marriage there's to be complete transparency, total openness, Between man and woman. Nothing hidden. Nothing came between them. Both of them were open books. And we know that our marriage should be like this. In our finances. In our thoughts. In all that we are. So many marriages flounder just on this very point. Secret addictions to drugs going on, to drinking, to gambling, to dating sites bring marriages down. Stuff concealed in the house, in the garage. The aim, the ideal of a healthy marriage is openness, transparency. The husband will truthfully and fully tell his wife why he is late home. Marriage then. So foundational in Genesis 2 and in the 21st century. These foundations and aspects of them that we've thought of this evening reveals our failures. For we have not fulfilled the design of God for our lives, the openness, the equality, the rules. We have failed in many ways. And it leads us to Jesus, the second Adam who loves his bride. And many see a connection between Eve coming from the side of Adam and the church coming from the pierced side of Jesus. Perhaps we're to see a relationship between Adam sleeping and Jesus sleeping in the grave and in that moment of sleeping, the bride comes. Perhaps we're to see in the bringing of Eve to Adam, the bringing by the Spirit of God of all the elect, To the second Adam. Beyond the love of this first man Adam. For this first woman Eve. A love considerable. A love great. A love sacrificial. We're to see the love of Christ. For his church. For his bride. In response to that love. We give ourselves again to faithfulness. And devotion. To our spouse. For those of you not married, this is a wonderful chapter and a chapter that I found great comfort and peace in. That God knows your needs, your desires, your longings. And just as he provided in his plan and his purpose for Adam, so in his amazing ways he can provide for you. I remember that the words brought her to the man really helped me. And I was able to, to, to leave my situation with God that, that just as he brought a woman to the man, 
if it was his purpose, he, he would bring a woman to me. And shortly after, Ruth bought a house 800 meters up the road from mine. This is our God, and you can look to him. And for those of you who are widows and, and feel, feel the pain of losing a spouse, let you find great encouragement in this, that in the Bible, you have a special place. In God's law in the Old and the New Testament, he exhorts his church not to forget the widow. Within our congregation and within your community and within your family, that crucible that God has brought you through of pain and weakness and suffering and the depth of sorrow that you had never experienced before will be amazingly used by God to bring blessing to many other people's lives. 